Hey everybody, you're listening to the Built on Web3 podcast, your on-ramp into the world of Web3. On this show, we chat with product leaders, builders, content creators, and business owners about how they're implementing Web3 strategies into their businesses. I hope you learned something new and enjoy today's episode. Cameron, we're so excited to chat with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to join. Before we get into everything you're doing in Web3, because you are doing a lot, uh, give us some background on who you are and what you were up to pre-Web3. Yeah. Um, gosh. So I started off making smartphone-controlled door locks. Uh, was one of the first startups doing that way back. Um, that, that took us out to Silicon Valley. Uh, we had this company called Lockatron. We first hand built our door locks, then we had this massive crowdfunding campaign, then we shipped a product that didn't work super great, then we came <laughs> back to it and we made a product that worked really well. Um, we were in Target stores and Best Buy at the end of the day. We, we sold that company in 2018. Um, so kind of went through this whole up and down, but just a lot of deep hardware experience, specifically using secure chips. Um, all during that time, I was kind of like in and out of crypto. So like I mined, I GPU mined Bitcoin for unfortunately way too short of a period of time <laughs> in like 2011, forgot about it. And then in 2016, it was actually this company, not company, this project called Slocket that reached out to us. Um, and they were these guys who were saying, hey, we're building this decentralized Airbnb on Ethereum. And in 2016, we're like, what are you talking about? This is yeah. There was nothing insane. like that in 2016, <laughs> right? Right. And well, and so Slocket very quickly got like and the reason why you don't hear much about them is the the same team was also working on the DAO, which became the DAO hack, which forked the Ethereum. DAO. So yeah, the DAO, like the canonical. <laughs> this was the DAO, um, and so yeah, they kind of got busy with that. And anyway, so long story short. Though the I, that pulled us in, we're like, okay, door locks and Ethereum. And after like chuckling about it, we're like, oh no, they're serious, and this is actually really interesting. And so early 2017, did this whole deep dive um, before things started to go too crazy, and that's where we actually decided to exit the door lock company because we're like, no, we really want to build in this space. So been around like since that cycle. Um, early 2018, as as we were coming off the the highs, we were building a lot of different projects to just experiment with like, hey, how can we leverage secure chips to make crypto ubiquitous in the real world? And so mm. we actually had a project which was based on these Bluetooth chips that we started working on. We were kind of trying to build like an AirTag tracker network before AirTag existed. We'd heard that Apple was working on something and we're like, oh, we can do a decentralized version. We got really far with that. But Ethereum just wasn't performant enough, and there were no L2s at that point. Um, I think there was the uh, XDI. That was about it, like Proof of Authority Network. Mm. But it was really, really basic, really early, early times. I'm like, okay, let's back up. Let's focus on custody, like really simple application and using our knowledge of chips to apply that to like um, self-custody because you have ledgers and trezors and they're really expensive how can we make low-cost, easy-to-use self-custody products? So we created this Concash note, uh, which is this, this physical cash um, cryptocurrency. And it looks and it feels like cash. You touch it. It's actually a full-color printed circuit board. And it has these chips wow. mounted on it in the corner. Um, 
and so cool. yeah, so we 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 made this cache and we 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 decided to drop it um, at DevCon Osaka, so the last DevCon that happened in 2019. Um, and I, I, I mean, literally drop it. It was in this sort of like immersive experience, uh, calling it like a mystery room doesn't do its service because it actually was performance art. There were people like in this experience and you would walk through it and there's like this printing press and like these printed cash bills all over the place. And then Kong cash was like scattered into it and people <laughs> discovered it that way. And at first they're like, oh, this is some weird, crazy joke. And then they saw it and they're like, oh, this is something very, very different because each one of these is effectively a computer with a private key on it and it lets you sign signatures. And so it was a really interesting way to like reveal this to the real world. So we, we played in the cash space for a bit. Um, then after end of 2019, 2020 went to like a money printing conference. We talked to a bunch of big uh, uh, companies. There's a money, money printing, printing conference. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> like a whole different side. <laughs> Shouldn't there only so, be one person that can print money? <laughs> you know, it was um, it was it was like me I and like this. forty people from around the world talking about how like cash is going away and how money. It was it was a fascinating fascinating conference actually. Uh, uh, is, yeah, this is so and great. And they're like, oh, there's like the guy with his like weird crypto money, and you know, we're printing like euros and dollars and, and other <laughs> things around the world. So it was. A lot of people in suits um, were very confused by what we were doing. Um, and so we explored that a little bit. And the problem with cash is, besides the fact that it's dying um, and kind of anach anachronistic, uh, it's just like you have to make so much of it to make it viable. Like you have to print tens of millions of units, um, and it's just very, very costly to add chips to tens of millions of things. So we kind of shelved that project and we said, okay. You know what are what are other applications of this? And right before COVID shut everything down, there was Drew from Metafactory, uh, which is this um, kind of Web three crypto native streetwear brand. He said, "Hey, we're starting this brand. Can you just give us the chip portion of that bill, and we want to embed it into into merch and clothing?" And so we're like, "Okay, sure, let's give this a shot." And it wasn't until like late 2020, early 2021 that they did their first drop. Um, people thought it was cool, but it was right before NFTs took off. And so it wasn't about physical NFTs yet. It was about like linking mm -hmm. this thing on chain. And then I'm trying to think like, basically we slowly worked with them <laughs> and then the chip shortage hit like really, really oh, yeah. badly. So we had these chips that we were making. Um, and originally they cost $5 to manufacture and then it skyrocketed. Um, and to get one secure element chip, I think like one of the, the most ridiculous quotes I got secondhand was like for the single chip was $34. <laughs> and we're like, okay, business model is broken. We can't do this. <laughs> um, so we went back to the drawing board. End of 2021, we found a new chip. We're like, okay, we can source this consistently. Uh, we launched at ETH Denver this year. And that is the, um, the Halo chip, which... You know, we, we took it and we put it in a really nice little round package um, and it's washable and you can embed it into any clothing, collectibles, art, um, and it's really resilient. And the, the great thing about doing a V2 is we're able to add in all these features that we wanted. So effectively, it's a full hardware wallet um, in a chip form. Let's you, you can store tokens on it. You can link it to things. Um, and the other cool part is you can use it entirely via the browser. 
So a user does not need to download a dedicated app to start getting up and running with it, um, which is a big challenge. And I think that um, that was something we're adamant about, you know, people should just be able to tap this and get going. Um, and so that's where we are today. We we do a bunch of chips for different projects and we're super excited to help folks. And yeah, uh, the most recently has been this Azuki Golden Skateboard. I saw that, yeah. Chips, which is pretty cool. So. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, yeah, so there's a lot in there. Um, going back to the, the Kong cash. So you keep saying we, 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 who, who is we, is it you and some co-founders, you and some friends just like hacking around, like what's the team or what was yeah. the team? Yeah. So, um, it was a couple of friends, uh, a previous co-founder from the previous door lock company, another co-founder who had helped with the door lock company and then came in and out another friend, um, who's interested in this. No pun intended. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, it, you know, it's, the today it's uh two two of us core contributors or founders whoever want to look at it from the project standpoint um we've worked on and off on projects for the last 10 plus years um so yeah really small team cool uh, we and, have a, and few, was, a few other folks too like contractors but yeah mm -hmm. and was the point of concast just like a project like just to try out for fun or was the intention like we're going to build a business here or, or was it just, we just want to experiment in the space and see what happens. Yeah. So Concash, Concash was very much an explicit demo of why chips are really important for self-custody and cryptocurrency. So we actually okay. in 2018 had a whole exploration of how do we make secure chips better? And we went, we talked to a whole bunch of different people. We spoke with people at the Ethereum foundation. Everyone's like, this is cool, but I don't really get it. And so we're like, what's a very concrete demo of chips have value. And so Concash was, was what came out of that. Got it. So why are chips so important for web three and crypto? Oh man. Uh, it's like a hobby horse topic to go on for this ever, but, um, so every, everyone talks about uh, computer security and watching about like getting your phone hacked or your MetaMask or things like that. Um, ultimately, computers are just a set of logic and instructions that are running on chips. And so if the chips are broken, then all bets are off. You can have the most secure operating system in the world, but if the chip is broken, people can extract the keys from it. Um, and so this is, it's funny, now chips are in the news all the time. I mean, the US just passed this massive, almost like hundreds of billions of dollars going towards chip research and bringing back chip manufacturing to the U.S. In 2018, when we were exploring this, we were like beating this drum and everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. We're going to go off and fund other things. <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, chips are, are critical for self-custody um, because you need to keep your private keys secure somewhere. And... Uh, we think that the best way to approach it is by figuring out applications where you need to scale up chips and then leveraging those applications to say, all right, um, if we can funnel all of these resources into single chips, then we can build better chips, you know, open source chips, chips where people understand the security guarantees. Um, yeah. So very, very passionate around we should have better chips. And then the, the side effect of that is, okay, if we can accomplish that mission, then our iPhones and Androids and laptops and hardware wallets get better chips as well. Um, and we have better guarantees around um, that. And everything else, you know, you know, part of it also comes down to it's not just about NFTs and funds. It's about this bigger identity piece now, which is coming up, especially around like, you know, everybody's debating the Twitter acquisition, but 
Web3 is all about you own your identity, um, you own your keys. And so for us, it's like, well, how do you make this key storage better? How, how do you make it more secure and how do you make it easy to use? Got it. Yeah, that's really cool. So is what, what are kind of some of the use cases you're seeing now? Because So your company, ARX, you, I'm assuming you partner with companies to embed the chips in whatever products they're using. What are some of the use cases you're seeing today um, that are getting you really excited? Yeah, so so um, I should be clear. ARX is the company, but it it is uh, it's really supplying through this project called Kongland. So Kongland is DAO. It's an open place for creators to come. It's also like the long term, I think, spiritual leader behind this idea of open secure chips. Um, so we've seen the most interesting applications come in through the DAO. Um, I'll talk about the more conventional ones first. So more conventional ones are. Um, number one is uh, garments and merchandise. And you can think of it as uh, like big traditional brands with high-end luxury goods have this authenticity problem. So Louis Vuitton or Gucci, whoever it is, like everybody always wants to, to counterfeit those. So now if you have a chip embedded in the garment at the time of creation, you have this really strong authenticity. Um there's historically been, you know, NFC chips for the past few years, and they're basically like a pointer. And it's like, hey, this is secure because you can't copy the pointer. Unfortunately, it turns out you can. So a lot of these <laughs> solutions aren't so great anymore. The cool thing about our chips is you can generate attestations or signatures to say like, all right, I can challenge this chip to prove that this hoodie is in fact an original, you know, whatever it is, Gucci hoodie or something like that. So that's that's kind of the the I'd say the more conventional entry point, and it's it's there's a lot of value there to anti counterfeiting, but we really like working with Web three projects there to begin with, so crypto native brands. Um, so I bring up Metafactory because it's not just about the authenticity, but now all of a sudden you can tie your physical garment to a digital wearable that you can take in Decentraland or crypto voxels, and you own it across the stack, the physical virtual stack. And so that's really cool. But then the next step on top of that is you can start to build applications independent from the brands which use the chips. Um, and you know, at a high level, you think like ticketing or check-in or payments. And that's kind of the, the next level stuff that we're really excited by. So Anna, um, the, the knee-jerk reaction question that I have is, well, okay, so you embed this secure chip into a piece of clothing. Can't you just move it to another piece of clothing and it also be that? Or like how, and then um, the other piece is, why, do you, why is Web3 so important to this? Why can't you just do it within Web2? Yeah, yeah. Um, both are really great questions. So... Um, that's a very valid question around like, okay, you put a chip into something and you sell it. Can't you just cut the chip out and put it into something else? The short answer is yes, completely doable. And that's actually one of the reasons why we're very strongly opinionated on chips should go into new things, not historical things. Um, so I put a chip on like Air Jordans from the 90s. They still have value even if you rip the chip out and counterfeit them and put them in like the fake Air Jordans. Um, and that's really you know, challenging. But if I put a chip into a product which should have a chip in it and you remove the chip from that and you're like, well, this 2022 hoodie from Metafactory should have a chip in it and it's gone now, like then that new synthetic good, that hoodie is lost value. 
it no longer has a chip in it. So we're we're strongly opinionated that once people recognize that things from a certain point forward should have chips in them, if they don't, that's a huge problem. And you, the original may be the original, but because it doesn't have the chip in it, you've lost a bunch of capabilities on chain. There's basically no there's no economic incentive to to do that to rip the chip out and move it because you'd be devaluing the original thing. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and the, you know, the other piece of this is, um, we think that there's going to be a bunch of other capabilities that come to the chips, i.e. airdrops and future, future things that come down. So, so now the value, the, the digital value is ongoing. It's not purely this authentication, but you're like, yeah, I really want to have the chip in there because I want to get, you know, the special whitelisted NFT access. Um, to the other question around why Web3, uh, we, we, we actually had a big brand reach out to us in 2021, conventional brand, and they said, hey, we want to use chips for a drop. And we explored it for a bit with them. But the challenge that we came down to was like in the heat of like NFT summer and everything going crazy, a lot of these brands just want to do these flash in the pan drops and like get their PFP out and make some money and be done with it. And the Web3 brands have a much more authentic understanding of like, hey, here are customers. They're a little bit more technical to begin with, but we can explain the gyps to them. We can show them the value and we can experiment with all these really crazy, cool ideas that then ultimately you can bring back to traditional brands. But I think it's still too early. Um, I think that like you have things happening now with a few brands, like maybe like the Nike artifact drop where they're playing around with chips. But in general, um, the market is still maturing to understand. Like we <laughs> barely got people to understand what NFTs were last year. So like now introducing chips and PBTs, like we should do that with smaller groups of people build a base of knowledge so that, you know, when, when your dad calls and he's like, Hey, what is this thing that these people are talking about? You'd be like, Oh, I can actually explain to you. Cause like I own one and here's how it works. Yeah, for sure. Can you kind of explain the, the physical back token and the, the use case recently with the 24 karat gold skateboard and just kind of why, like, that's an important project. And like you said, it's web three native. So like their customers get it right. But can you kind yeah. of explain that project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Azuki recently dropped the physically backed token, the PBT. Um, really, what what the PBT is is it's it's codifying a lot of stuff that's been happening with physicals over the last eighteen months. There just hasn't been a name uh, and a standard to it. So um, what I'll compare this to is in 2018, 2017, people were creating NFTs. Um, CryptoPunks were NFTs before there was a 721 spec. So everyone knows what the 721 is, but the spec didn't actually exist yet. And so a lot of like collections upgraded to that spec over time. Similarly now, like people have been doing physically backed tokens for a while now. There just hasn't been this open spec to say, hey, here's the ground rules and how these things work. And so the cool thing about the PBT spec is you can kind of think about it a little bit like a soulbound token, like a token that gets attached to your account and never leaves. But in this case, the token gets attached to the physical and never leaves. And you're saying that the physical has the value and you can't split the two up. So there's like a lot of debate around people on, uh, on this and saying like, hey, I get the physical and I want to take the token 
and I want to flip it. But then what value does the physical have? Like you have this hoodie or golden skateboard. Obviously the golden skateboard has residual value apart from the token, but, but you have something else. You're like, Oh, but I want the physical to be valuable. And so the PBT just says, all right, we'll let you take ownership of the golden skateboard. Um, if you have the possession of it, you can scan it and create a signature, but you can't just flip it. You can't resell the digital version without giving up the physical. And that's just a really important piece in our minds of like pushing physicals into the same value category as NFTs. And obviously it slows down the sales cycle because you can't go through these crazy flips. But the, the, the flip side of that, as it were, is that now physicals can like tap into this different kind of liquidity pool with the, the, the idea that you can flex the physical on chain and you can say like, mm. hey, you can see on chain, I'm the owner of the golden skateboard. So yeah, yeah. awesome work by Azuki. I'm, I'm codifying it into the PBT. It's been happening for a while. Projects like Metafactor and IYK have done a lot there. Um, but now there's this very clear picture of like, awesome. Now people can start to talk about it in simpler language and, and explain it to other folks. And I think this might kind of go to what you might have said and when sean and i were doing some research on you of like this can allow for the collateralization of physical goods in the web three or like in the metaverse and so forth because now we can actually see and prove what you own and how much it's worth uh, and so forth which previously wasn't possible to do yeah yeah i think i think collateralization is a super interesting idea i think this is a piece of the puzzle um, but it's really, it's really basically, uh, in my mind, changing the narrative around metaverse of like, Hey, you know, one of the biggest pushbacks last year from everyone and like the media and, and like comedy shows and stuff is like, Oh, you own this JPEG and like, great. What can you do with that JPEG? But here now we're saying, Hey, the way in which we think about on-chain property rights with respect to NFTs and tokens is now applicable to physical things in a really convenient, easy-to-use package. And there have been projects that have been doing this for a long time. They, they try to do it through contracts, though, like with real estate. Um, in this case, we're saying, if the thing is small and portable enough, put this chip on it. The chip has a cryptographic identity that you're imbuing into the thing. And now, yeah, you can reflect it back in your wallet and in theory, maybe create derivative financial instruments based on that. Um, and it's, you know, I think there's some questions around that. Like you you have a loan based on your PBTs and people come knock on your door and take your golden skateboard. Like maybe that's not the case, but maybe there are other claims on the golden skateboard because of the fact that you can loan it out and then someone can claim airdrops against it. So, you know, mm. if... If Yuga Labs had dropped ape token onto hoodies instead of apes, and you have that, there's a very clear value then that you can financialize out of that physical. Interesting. What do you think, like, if, if we fast forward five years, what do you think PBTs will look like? Like, what's kind of like a really interesting use case that you're excited to see someone do? Um, so I think that, the PBTs themselves are, are actually pretty mundane and they'll be ubiquitous. So fast forward five years, I think like there'll be like anything with some value will be a PBT. But I think the really cool thing is the PBT, PBT is just a jumping off point for doing other really cool interactions IRL. Um, and so I kind of alluded to this earlier around like, 
I think I mentioned like event ticketing or something. So one of the really cool applications that we've heard about is this DAO called uh, Krausehouse. So they they have a jersey which Metafactory made for them, and um, their goal is they're going to buy I think a basketball team. And in the case of Krausehouse, they they came up with this really cool idea, which is okay, you have a jersey from Krausehouse, and then the players, rather than using a Sharpie to sign it, can pull out their wallets and they can tap your jersey and sign it digitally. And so you start to get these really cool like add-on effects of like, oh yeah, this jersey was signed by this player cryptographically um, and now you can accumulate signature, like way more signatures than you could ever fit on the jersey and you wear this jersey to every game and and so forth. So I think you're going to start to get these really powerful interactions that are based on where you were, what you did, the events you went to, um, and and you might get drops as a result of it. Um, so micro-targeting by like artists um, to fans, uh, the potential for crazy whitelisting. So there's all these problems of like, oh, why not whitelist? Like everybody is complaining about art gobblers and who didn't get on the whitelist. Well, what if like all the fans who own this piece in IRL can get whitelisted the same way that they could through digital stuff. So giving giving this kind of tooling to physical creators that now digital creators have gotten used to. Hmm. So when you say that you think PBTs will be ubiquitous, do you think like literally anything that we buy will just have these in it? So like if I buy a car, not even like a Lambo, but like if I just buy a Subaru, you know, uh, do you think it'll have a PBT on it that I could then show that I own a Subaru on chain? And it'll show up in my my metaverse. <laughs> um, I debate. This is a really interesting point. I think that there's some people who are trying to apply this to larger stuff. And so, to my point around real estate, so like you put a chip on a house, and because of that chip, you can change ownership. Like I don't think so. Like the, the state when you has take your house with you, that. you know, yeah, right, on your next right. trip, <laughs> right. And so, I think that the car is maybe the absolute ridiculous limit of a pbt but even then i'm somewhat skeptical but let's like i think i could imagine that someone comes up with a legal crossover where like you change the pbt and it auto registers the title with some some company or whatever like that's seems feasible but anything larger than a car or more fixed probably unlikely Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, in the case of the car, it's not really going to be based on a chip mounted in the car uh, that you tap with your phone. It'll be based on something much more like deep within the car and the components of the car. But uh, what we really focus on, and by everything, I think um, any good, uh, any good with sort of excess brand value beyond its utility. And so, by that, you know, I would say okay, you know, maybe like your Hanes underwear is not going to be like PBT worthy, uh, but... But my Gucci um, underwear is. Your Gucci underwear <laughs> probably is. Kirkland? Right. What about Kirkland? <laughs> exactly, exactly. When Kirkland hits PBTs, like that's that's a <laughs> pretty distant future in my mind. But. All right, one thing that Thomas and I talk about a lot, like when we're just like thinking through use cases is we're big wine fans and I'm interested if there's any examples like with consumables. Because it's kind of a weird, like, I always joke that we have to figure out how to do proof of consumption, um, which, I mean, I don't think you can. But would something like wine be, like, an interesting use case to have, like, maybe maybe it only works for, like, collector wine and, like, cellaring it and keeping the PBDs in the bottle. But have you seen any use cases with consumables? 
Yeah, yeah. I, we haven't done much work there. We there was one project, uh, Whiskey Pioneers. So they're a DAO who makes whiskey, uh, and another one, um, they Raid Brood, I think, is making beer. Anyway, so there've been a couple projects that are experimenting around this case. Um, I think some of them are looking at, hey, how do we add experiences for the consumers with the chips? It's not so much around the consumption or vaulting it. Um, uh, and the challenge becomes like, okay, like, do you destroy the chip as you get into the alcohol and you can't scan it anymore? Like, what's the proof that you've tampered with it? Um, there's other projects, not us, who are definitely using more of these, like, they're, they're chips designed to be tampered with. The problem is, those chips don't have the sophistication of being sort of wallets on chain, but maybe that's okay because maybe you just need to be like, yeah, I have this whatever, you know, 2008 bottle of Cabernet or something that I really care about. Uh, and I, I, I think that's a perfectly valid PBT. Like, like the fact that you want to flex your wine collection on chain and maybe it's not even about flexing it, but actually just like archiving it and understanding like, Hey, here's all the bottles. And the cool thing is because everything on chain is composable. Like anybody can build a UX for that. You don't need to have some bespoke like wine tracker app. Um, I think it, it, it'll just be practical to have these things represented as PBTs because um, you don't need to cut partnerships with like all the wine companies to like be listed in some app or something. I want to go back to something you said earlier when I asked you about like why web three instead of web two doing this. And I thought it was so interesting. How I, I think you were alluding to the fact that even if it doesn't like financially or marketing ish, like make business sense right now to, to do web three, like if it's more so that there is a community that's growing organically that really appeals to this and believes in the future of what web three will bring in terms of possibilities. And in that future, we'll be solving problems that web two can't solve right now. Um, is that about right of like what you're yeah. thinking about? Yeah, yeah. What the Web three community and people within it just have a much deeper intuitive sense as to why certain things are constructed the way they are in crypto. Like, why why do you have to go through this whole pain of having a wallet? Like, you lose it or it gets hacked. Like, why do you do that? It's 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 a really bad UX from a Web two world. Like, oh, you type in your email address and you get in. But as more of the traditional world damages damages its relationship with its users because its data is hacked or sold or lost or does other bad things intuitively that's where web3 natives are like no like i've already awakened to the fact that this can solve these problems that that we have the tools uh from a property ownership standpoint from authenticity of my speech standpoint from you know, protecting my data, that, that these tools is, exist. And so I think ultimately everybody will become a Web3 native when they when they appreciate how powerful these tools are. And so in, in our case, there's actually like real concrete examples of this, of previous generations of technology where people can track and attest to things, but then the company who did that goes under or gets acquired and you can no longer follow the trail of facts around that. And in our case, the goal is, yeah, if you have this chip in there, we can disappear tomorrow and you can always attest to who made the chip, who made the item, what rights you have to it, because they're all on chain. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about kind of how you've structured um, 
the company and the DAO and Kongland and all of this stuff, I'm not sure I fully understand. So I'd really like to to really dissect why you don't just have a company that builds chips and you sell it to, to projects. Like why go through having Kongland and passports and citizenship and, and, and all this stuff and Concash. Yeah, Can you kind of explain that thought process and kind of what each um, participant in the the group is. Yeah, um, and. I'll start by saying that it's it's all sort of a very fluid experience of Web three, and like we've learned from one to the other. Um, we we started as a as a C corp that was a project, and then we launched Kong, but we realized that Kong was a crypto project, uh, and then we we went from there to saying, okay, let's launch Kongland as a DAO, and the reason behind the DAO was we said, all right. We could be a company just building this chip technology in isolation, but it's problematic of if we go away and we're pitching this vision of open chips and how people can use them, um, and and we've just gone away. So let's launch the DAO, and so the the Kongland as a DAO, I would say, is really where the mission lives, where the idea of in the long term we need better chips, but that is not a um, that's not like a static problem that you solve. You don't just one day have better chips and you're like, we're done. It's like, it's a continuity. Like people have to keep making better chips. Um, And so culturally that's what it's all about is better silicon, better self-custody of assets. Um, And so the community coming in there is people who want to use chips themselves, um, people who are interested in the intersection between physical and digital. um, And ultimately we see them as owning the the long-term vision and and protocol pieces um, of the chip so it's not just about the hardware it's also about on-chain protocol pieces that we're building for the resolution chips of chips and understanding who made them and the the characteristics of them so yeah the DAO is like um i'd say like the soul of the project the the arc side of things is we can move fast. We can have a conventional business which ships chips to people, um, iterates on them, uh, make sure that core pieces get built and people get the tools that they need. Um, And I think that's something that we learned over the last year is the DAO is amazing for these long-term big vision side things, but it's not great for moving fast. And so that's where the C-Corp comes into play. um, And, you know, we can cut you whatever deal you need on chips and volumes and and so forth. Um, we talked about, you know, the DAO making the chips uh, in the long run. I think that's possible, but I think that um, DAOs have been shown that they're not ideal for moving fast on things, but better for getting a bunch of people in the room on something and and getting people behind a mission. And so I can imagine a future where maybe it isn't necessarily that the Kongland DAO itself is making chips, but that sub DAOs um, are dedicated on specific functions um, in in the distant future. Can can you re-explain like how the DAO interacts with the C Corp and if Kong Cash has anything to do with it? And maybe another trick question on top of that is like what what's the economics behind it? Like how do you how do you live on? <laughs> How do you make money? Right, right. So Kong Cash predates the DAO, and that like came from the C Corp. And Kong Cash, um, I mean, this this should actually um, backing up for a second. So 
the name Kong and the idea of Kong behind the cash. A lot of people said, well, you're making these cash notes. Why didn't you do Ethereum or something else? And it's because money is actually a very crazy psychological tool. We chose it because everybody from age like four on knows how to spend it, use it, save it. If you burn it, it's gone. Um, and we said, okay, if we're going to create money, we want to create a culture behind that money. And the problem with creating um, or using existing money like Ethereum is you have to follow Ethereum's culture and try to map and everything. We said, let's let's start from scratch. Let's come up with a sci-fi future currency from a place that doesn't, doesn't exist. And so that's where Kong came from. It's It's heavily inspired from you know, a reference in Snow Crash, uh, the the Neil Stevenson book. Um, and yeah, it, we, you know, Kong notes have both English and Chinese on them. They have these, like these uh, Roman statues on them. They have these planets on them. They have a bunch of culture. And so with Kong land, we took that and we launched Kong land around sort of the basis of that culture. And we say it's a crypto state. Um, so when it comes to how we think about splitting the two and the economic side of it, it's like, okay, ARCS is like um, an industry, the core, a core industry of, of Kongland, so to speak. It's incorporated in the real world, but it's a business, um, not a government. Kongland is, is a government. Um, the DAO is really interesting. We were one of the first DAOs to give like one vote per citizen in the DAO um, to control the treasury. It's not like an economic control where you own more token and you can vote more. It's like one vote per one person. Um, and so the question is, okay, how are, how are their returns if the company is really successful and it's selling chips and it makes a margin on those chips? How does that return to the DAO? And that's where we believe protocol is the most powerful way to do this. And so we have this core protocol, which we're building, which is called the Ethereum Reality Service. And the idea behind it, um, it's a little bit like ENS, is when you scan a chip, you should be able to understand who manufactured the chip, who is the brand who put the chip into something, who's the owner of the chip, what are the capabilities of the chip, basically. Um, and so ERS is um, is kind of the ownership of it is is going to go significantly to Kongland um, as a DAO. And that's where I think economically Kongland will benefit from ERS. They'll benefit from more chips out there but also will take on the responsibility of the long-term management of ERS as a protocol. Um, and so you've seen a lot of projects um, like a Uniswap or, or ENS where they launch first as a company, they build a thing, and then they're like, boom, we have a DAO now. Like, hey, everybody, you're, you're our DAO. We just did it in reverse where we have everybody passionate about chips. We're building these pieces, but now the C-Corp needs to go off and scale this business. And then as ERS comes out, um, Kongland will, you know, reap significant rewards from that. Hopefully, got it. And the so you did an initial uh, um, drop for to people for people to become citizens of Kongland, right? So it's you buy a citizen token, you burn it, and you become um, a citizen of Kongland, right. right? And I know I think it's five hundred was the the limit right. on the, the yeah. first drop. How many of those did you end up selling, and can people still become citizens? Uh, alpha yeah. citizens, I should say. Um, we were um, we were kind of naive about that first drop, so we dropped 500. This uh, was in 2021, and it was at ECC. And at that point in time, we kind of said, you know, like maybe 
500 tokens enough. We could manufacture 500 physical passports that you can get when you burn the token. Um, and maybe there's 500 people in the community now who want to join on this mission of chips and are, care about it. And so we actually priced it fairly reasonably between like 50 and $200 at the upper end. Um, unfortunately, the way it worked was we were in a Uniswap V3 position and immediately we had whales come in and all of them were bought out. And so everything is secondary now. So the Dow got a little bit of out of that, but not a huge amount. And then the prices escalated and, you know, at their peak, they were, yeah, I forget what it was, seven ETH, eight ETH, oh my God. ETH was at $4,000. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And now I think if you want to buy one, it's probably like one to two ETH. There's very thin liquidity. And so it, it was really cool, but unfortunately a lot of that, people think oh that comes to you but it doesn't it, it's just secondary market trading um and so we've created a new citizen token ctzn which is you know maybe a little less exclusive but it still gives you the same vote in the dow one-to-one -one vote um and we're you know quietly experimenting on how to best roll that out like do we roll it out to people who want to contribute to the dow do we roll it out to referrals do we have an open market where folks can just purchase it um, and, and so we're very early in those experiments trying to understand the best way to get out there after having, you know, probably a bit of a missed opportunity to, to launch more of it uh, back in 2021. Mm -hmm. Well, what would you do differently if you were, you know, starting over? Like, how do you prevent a whale from coming in and just buying up, you know, all 500 tokens for 50 bucks? And then, and then people were buying, like theoretically buying these for $20,000, and you didn't get to see any of that. How, what, like, what would you do differently to, to capture some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think we would have been less stingy on the quantity. I think we undershot and we could have done more. And, you know, folks internally at that time, we had a huge debate. We're like, oh, 500, 10,000, 5,000. Um, and I think I was one of the ones who was actually pushing for fewer and, and you know, some regrets around that. So I think we would have made it more open-ended. Um also, usage of the Uniswap V3 positions is really cool because you can set this pricing targets, but um, you get these really crazy knock-on effects where people can put liquidity of your token over this really huge range, and then people have to buy up really far to get there. And there's lots of games where you can move up really fast and crash down really <laughs> fast versus a traditional Uniswap V2 pool or a standard balancer curve where, you know, uh, had we had 500 tokens, by token 250, the, like as you go, the prices would have gotten much, much higher. So it would have prevented um, the really insane whale action from buying everything out all at once. Um, I also think that we didn't really understand at that point we were in such a bull market, which is, I, again, naive to say that, but it didn't, having been around since like 2017, 2018, we're like, well, we don't know. Maybe the people are interested in this. Now, the cool thing is in bit of a bear market like you really can find your biggest fans like the people who are truly interested um and i think there's probably it's less likely that you're gonna get super insane whale actions of everybody buying everything out and then trying to charge 10x maybe they'll try to charge 2x but you know there's there's less likelihood of that happening so yeah i wish we'd issued a few more i wish we'd used probably a traditional v2 uniswap pool instead um and maybe there's just other better mechanisms to go out there and recruit folks to your DAO, um, you know, versus 
versus having them buy in. But it's really challenging um, because you know you get really great effects by having a token. People can see it on CoinGecko and like talk about it. And like you know, there's there's good and bad to having the liquidity there and people talking about trading it. Yeah, yeah. What is like an ideal DAO member for you guys? Like for anyone listening and they're like, oh, maybe I'm interested in this. Like, who is Kongland for? And maybe as you're experimenting with the the new token coming up, where you can maybe get some new citizens um in the DAO. Like who who's this for? Yeah. Um I think anyone who said who's basically heard the original metaverse thesis of like we're gonna be living in VR and was like, huh, like I don't actually believe in that. Like I'm into web three, but I like things IRL. Like I think that's the gateway to Kongland to being like, well, wait a second here. And and so, you know, I'd say a layer below that is is if you like nfts but also like irl existence and stuff and think that things irl can be valuable and you want more of those interactions that's what we really care about because the cool thing is the chips aren't just about owning stuff um, there's a lot of applications for the chips where you can have them in certain places and then you can prove you're there you can like scan a chip that someone has and attest to something um so yeah i think like citizens should be people who like want to experiment and are interested in that side of things and it doesn't really matter if they're an artist who wants to use the chips or someone who just wants to like talk about it and share content about it or someone who wants to write code you know all of the above is is valuable because um we just want to get that narrative out there of like hey these chips are really important and you can build really interesting experiences on top of them and we're just getting started. I mean, like we, we've been at this for four years and only now do I feel like, okay, the pieces have finally started to come together. Um, like again, now today is like NFTs 2018. Um, so imagine being like, hey, I want to start building on NFTs in the crypto kitties, crypto punks era. Super early for sure, but um, it should be really fun in, in a couple of years here. What do you think is going to happen with everything that's that you're building right now with Kongland, with these chips, as we start to blur the lines between the metaverse and then the IRL, real life world, especially from a regulatory standpoint, like when we start getting into taxes or IP or just all <laughs> these rules? And what do you think can be really dangerous as we're figuring this stuff out if government comes in and says like, no, you can't do it this way or that way or the other? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I'm I'm very much a like an old school crypto primitive um, hacker perspective. I take a very old school perspective on this, which is, and I say that because it dates back to this one specific case around, um, what is it? Uh, PG, PGP, like encrypted email. Um, so back in the early '90s, there was Phil Zim Zimmerman. He wrote. Uh, this whole spec on how you can encrypt email and the US government came along and they said, Hey, that's like munitions. You can't like publish that code. You can't export it. Like that's literal weapons. And he said, no, it isn't. And the EFF came in and they, they actually won the case against the government. They said, um, he's written code. He's open sourced it. Code is free speech. And the fact that it happens to be cryptographic is like, like below the fact that it's free speech. Um, 
And they also won, won, ultimately won that case. And that's why we have like SSL today. That's why we can have Signal and encrypted messaging and, and, and things like that. And so I think that's a really powerful, powerful argument to remember as we start to encounter like, okay, we're taking a physical and then we put some code on it. And now it's this digital thing. And it's like, how do you treat in all these ways? I'm all for like, I think tax regimes will figure this out. It's like, you have this property, you sell it, you owe taxes on it. Like there's, there's some configuration in which like, there's a fair way that you can pay taxes. Um, but I think the bigger concern is when you get agencies like the SEC, where they have these completely arbitrary regulations, or I shouldn't say that, they have completely arbitrary enforcement. They have fairly clear regulations, but how the enforcement is very like blurred lines. And, and so now NFTs are like, the ones that they're targeting next. And it's like this whole question of like, well, you know, what is, um, what is a shared enterprise and what are all these other definitions of the Howey test? So um, I'm, I'm going to still lean on um, code is free speech and there's going to be a number of really big cases there. I think especially around like tornado cash and things like that, which really push this back into the floor again. Um, I think our biggest challenge will be this. Um, the moment that you take that cryptographic code and you turn it into a physical, that's actually where you start to fall back under this munitions definition. And so like, it's a crazy idea of like, you're, you're exporting hoodies with chips in them. And like, are they on the same level of, you know, like guns and things like that? Um, uh, luckily in our case, we're most of our business stays domestic. And so I'm not too worried about that becoming a problem. Um, but I do think that, these are really valuable tools. And, and I think like, okay, talking about a golden skateboard is like one in the market and like, that's cool. And that's a fun demo. And it's ridiculous. And people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. But the real impact is like, if you can get these tools into the hands of people in countries who are dealing with like hyperinflation or in places where like they need to like get their assets and they can't get to banks or they just don't have access to banks, like that's actually insanely powerful. And that's like radically life-changing and if you can give them a small chip or a card, which is a hardware wallet, which lets them do that completely outside of, you know, corruption or inflation, that then you've made the world a better place. And so that's, that's really what we ultimately are targeting is like, hey, better chips, more people having chips, control over your assets um, is... <laughs> is the coolest thing ever. I mean, it's basically for the history of property, you've been unable to do this. And now we have amazing math that lets you do that. So very, very excited for that. What um, Web3 projects right now are you kind of eyeing that maybe listeners should uh, should check out that you're excited about? Yeah, I'm... Um, so there's two categories of stuff that I'm really interested in. Uh, one of them is like ZK, and I think ZK is moving really quickly and you know, uh, there's stuff in kind of the multi-chain world, uh, like secret protocol where they have like mm. secret NFTs and you can reveal things. So I think like, um, ZK and multi-chain world, really, really cool. Uh, and I've, I love the cosmos ecosystem and stuff that's happening there. I'm a big, I mean, we were primarily on Ethereum, but really excited for that. So I think like it's a low lift to experiment in cosmos and experiment on ZK and excited for the primitives that get built there. The other one is account abstraction. Um, and so the whole idea with account abstraction is um, 
basically that everything becomes uh, a multi-sig wallet that like you don't really interact directly anymore with tokens that everything is a multi-sig and as a result you have all these powerful benefits of like recovery of tokens and social recovery and all these other things and so there are things like entropy and lit protocol that are working on on account abstraction as well as um layer twos uh i forget which one of the zk layer twos everything is based on account abstraction um, Starkware in in the Starkware mm. world, everything's account abstraction. So, as up and coming stuff, I would say like, yeah, take a look. Like, if you want to play around, and you're not super technical. Play on Cosmos. If you want to look at more technical stuff, account abstraction is like a really cool future where, you know, the whole thing of like, oh man, my private keys got hacked and I lost everything. Like, you might be able to take the edge off of that and like have multiple ways of control. Mm-hmm. And we think the cool thing is in account abstraction, chips can play a role because now you can have like your MetaMask and a chip and your rainbow wallet on your phone and they have different levels of control um, over your tokens. I just downloaded a rainbow wallet. It was so easy. I loved it. Nice. <laughs> I was looking I'm for a- like the best UX app just to for like my friends or whoever I was explaining Web3 to to say, oh, like this is the easiest way to get in. And I downloaded it and I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I'm an OG rainbow fan, but nice. yeah, pretty cool <laughs> stuff. What is uh, what's the next year or two look like for you at Kongland and Arcs and, and everything you're doing? Yeah, um, tooling, 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 better tooling and documentation. Um, we are excited now. You know, we're closing some funding to basically build out better tooling around the chips, and we've just had such a lack of documentation. So really excited to make it easier for creators to use the chips, um, and then yeah just scaling them out to better use cases. So we want to make sure that we're sort of getting chips to people in hackathons where they understand like, hey, this is all possible um, and the chips aren't that expensive and you can you know, do really cool stuff on top of them. So yeah, heads down on that. Um, you should see us in some more projects where we're getting more chips out there to more folks um, and excited to really start to explore you know, the next level of this is, which is when you have enough chipped items out there, spaces start to adapt to accommodate them. Like spaces will scan for chips. Um, like you can swipe past them and get benefits from that. And so that's like another kind of exciting piece. So I think it's still all groundwork. I think my 2018 analogy is probably about right in terms of timeline, but you know, it'll be cool in a couple of years when you can be an OG with your chipped hoodie and, you know, badge in at an event and get a free drink and, you know, get whitelisted for some NFT drop. <laughs> Love it. Thomas, do you have any last minute questions here? Yeah, I think we're all good. Cool. Cameron, thanks so much for being on the show. This is so fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for hosting. And yeah, love, love joining. <laughs>